Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I'm joined by Mr. Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics and the Herpeticulture Network. Justin, welcome to the show. What's up? So, uh, you want to get started on how you first uh, got into reptiles and your kind of your pathway through the hobby? Yeah, it's uh, like like sort of how everyone else says. It's it's pretty similar to how a lot of us got into it. You know, I was a big fan of dinosaurs as a kid and wanted to be a paleontologist really bad and was obsessed with Jurassic Park and everything else like that. And then, of course, realized that uh, I wasn't going to be able to find dinosaurs anywhere. So reptiles were kind of the next best thing, but um it hit yeah i mean it 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 hit hard and it stuck i was a i was a military kid so my dad was navy so we moved around a lot um anybody who's sort of familiar with being a military kid and all that moving you know there's not a lot of constants in life uh and so herps was one of those things that i could take with me pretty much anywhere we went and it was it just it stuck and it never went anywhere and that was i mean i was probably six or seven um my first snake was a steraria um, that I left on my little table in my room in the sunlight in a critter keeper, and it was just fried. It was just crispy. And uh, after that, I had some rough green snakes. And so pretty much ever since, it's always been I've had something. Um, we lived in Hawaii for a time, so obviously there wasn't really anything happening there. But I did have some uh, Jackson's chameleons. And ended up finding some of those uh, blind snakes, too, which I thought was pretty cool. I didn't realize that those were really the only native snake to to Hawaii. Um, and I don't even know if they're they're really technically native. But um, other than that, it's pr- I pretty much always had stuff. But, but yeah, it was just a childhood sort of obsession that just morphed into an adult obsession and went from there. All right. So uh, how did you first uh, start getting into uh, podcasting? So it was actually directly inspired from, you know, if you're familiar with Joe Phelan and uh, the From the Ground Up podcast, um, he started that. And after, I think he'd been doing it for a couple of years now, but uh, at that point, it was one of those things where I was like, man, you know, we could probably do that and ended up finding my co-host Jake uh, through Instagram. Turns out, you know, we, I ended up stumbling across him because uh he was keeping morelia and i think there was a hashtag or something at the time that i was following that was morelia related so carpet pythons and stuff and um ended up following him and he followed me back and then you know i noticed he had some some really killer stuff and we kind of chatted a little bit and then we realized that we lived in the same town like he lived on the other side of town here in beaufort huh. south carolina and so we started hanging out and then really not long after that had happened uh, I was like, Hey man, I was like, let's, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And, and I was like, you know, you want to do it with me? Cause in Buford, there's really not the reptile sort of community or hobby, whatever you want to call it. Isn't super popular. Like it's in terms of like people that are like really into it. Um, as far as I know, it's pretty much me and Jake and there's a couple other guys I know locally that, that kind of do it. But for the most part, it wasn't, you know, it's not a big thing. So, uh, we started it, didn't really know exactly what we were going to do. Um, just kind of kicked it off and was like, whatever happens, happens, you know, it could take off. It could just completely flounder and, and hit rock bottom at some point or something. But, uh, you know, Jake at first was like, what are we like, what are we even going to talk about? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. You know, we'll just 
talk snakes. Like he and I already had times where we were just hanging out, you know, smoking cigars or whatever. And we were just talking, talking snakes and reptiles. I was like, it'd be that same conversation. We're just going to record it. Yeah. And so that's pretty much what it morphed into. And that, that was the first podcast, which was, uh, it's the herpeticulture podcast, which we're still doing. We just did episode 169. Nice. On Thursday. So we've been, we're coming up on five years of doing that, which is crazy because it's gone by so quick. Um, but we've been doing that every week, more or less, for the last five years. And it's morphed into some other stuff with the network and some other shows that I guess we can get into and stuff, you know, at, at some point. But it started with him and him and I, and it just, it stuck. You know, we just, we really, over time, it got better. You know, as as a lot of podcasts, it starts out really rocky because you're still sort of finding your your groove, you know, with things. Um and after a while, we, you know, we kind of, we found that, that routine and the, uh, our, our niche, so to speak. And it's just been fun. You know, we've been doing it ever since. So. All right. So, uh, currently what all do you have in your collection? Got a, it's morphed over the, over the years. Uh, right now it's a lot of corn snakes. Uh, a lot of bear rat snakes. I've got some uh, Chinese elafe, so elafe dion and elafe bimaculata. Uh, I got some rhino rats. I got some chondros. Got some Ganyasoma jansenii. So those are the, the black-tailed rat snakes. Um, some Transpecos rats. A couple of pine snakes. So one southern and uh, my buddy. Chris Payne Shab at Badlands. Her Badlands for Pediculture just sent me a Jani not that long ago. So it's the Mexican Mexican pine, I think is the common name. Um, and then I got a pair of Ackies, you know, so a little bit of everything. I was traditionally, I think Colubrids have always kind of been my thing, but I, I'm, I have a very big soft spot for, for Chondros and Green Tree Pythons. That's, that's definitely sort of in terms of Morelia, I've kept carpets and stuff over the years, but chondros, there's just something about them that I'm just, those will always be an obsession to some degree. You know, I just, that whole uh, side of things as far as breeding and whatnot has pretty much been put on pause. So that's kind of why I've switched, shifted focus a little more to, to the colubrids and stuff, you know, for the time being until I can kind of get back into breeding chondros. And, but for the most part, it's uh, a lot of, a lot of pantherophis. Gotcha. So I uh, listened to your podcast. You, it's really obvious you have a real fondness for uh, Baird's rat snakes. So you want to yeah. go over go over those guys and what you find, what what you love about them, basically. Man, so it's I loved them before, and then last year, uh, myself and Phil, who I do snakes and stogies with, which is our live show, uh, we went out with the Morelia Python Radio guys out to West Texas last year in June. And, you know, we were in sort of the, the home turf of, of bear rat snakes. And I loved them before that, but I loved them even more after being there and seeing that we didn't see any, but seeing the habitat and seeing what they're living through day in, day out. It's like, it's an intense, intense area. Like it's hot, dude. Uh, yeah. There's really no, no escape in the sun sort of, unless you're going underground or in the rocks and stuff. And so seeing the whole habitat and stuff was awesome, but that's the species in particular that, for whatever reason, never got super popular. They never really took off. And that's 
that's something in herpeticulture in particular that I've always found interesting is species that, that are awesome. They're not necessarily hard to breed. They're not hard to take care of, but they just never sort of got their, got their time in collections and stuff. And so beards, I think are one of those. It's just a species that like, yeah, they don't come in a bunch of neon colors, but there are some that are crazy silver with, orange uh at the base of the scales so it looks like sort of lava under steel like really wild and i've i've got those and like there's a mexican type that has a gray head and like a, a solid yellow body almost um, but they're a bigger species of pantherophis that's native to to southwest texas and into uh just over the border into mexico and then there's another sort of island population below that in mexico uh and they're just you know, they're a big desert rat snake. They're at one point they were related or classified as a subspecies of obsoleta. Hmm. Um, so they were sort of lumped in there with yellow rats because they do have a similar striping in some of them, depending on the locality. Uh, and then eventually they, they got their own species. So there was a, a debate at one point or another, if the Mexican types counted as a subspecies. And I think they were labeled one at one point. I don't even remember what the, know what the name was, but, Eventually, I guess they did some studies and they said, no, they're not different enough to be their own thing. So it's, uh, they're a larger species of, of pantherophis. I just hatched out. So I got some babies hatching right now, actually. And the, I mean, they're, they come out the size of, uh, probably twice the size as a baby corn. They're just, they're hefty little babies, but we're talking bigger snakes. So there's smaller clutches, but bigger eggs. Um, super easy to take care of. I keep them the same way I keep my corns. They seem to be a little more sensitive in terms of feeding in larger meals. Uh, so in that capacity, they're not really like a corn. Um, just as easy to breed. Just all of them are, are really mellow, too. I've got a couple that are, they're not bitey, but they are flighty. And uh, there's only, so there's anneries, which haven't even really hit hit the scene yet because tim spuckler is kind of the only guy that's that's got the visual there's one male visual annery bairds and he's got it at least that we know of and then there's hypos which also get called albinos it is a t plus albino so you could kind of use those terms uh interchangeably um and then you got all the different localities and stuff and so it's it's a species that i was amazed as, as i posted them more and talked about them more how many people came forward and was like i've never even heard of these before you know like I've, i was completely unaware that these even existed and it's i have gotten people into them now and people are starting to keep them and even you know some of the buddies that I, I have that that keep them now they're like dude these are awesome like i wish i had gotten them way sooner you know yeah. so they're they're just an awesome species of american rat snake man that that needs much more uh credit than it's than it's given yeah uh so with their uh, chondros, uh, what's been your experience with them? Oh, so like my my recent years experience, or like my very first experience, because those were two completely different uh, <laughs> situations. Well, what you say the first one sounds more entertaining, so let's go with oh, that one. Man. So the first one, I got a, I bought a green tree. It was just a biak. It was an import. Uh, got it off underground for like i paid like 350 or 400 for it at the time and i got it and i set it up sort of the way that i thought green tree should have been kept 
because uh, that was there's there's a ton of outdated sort of information in terms of chondros and how we keep them and how they should be kept and the idea that people think in in comparison to like emerald tree boas you know there's a two very different sort of biomes that we're dealing with there uh and so i think people have always at least since the you know 70s 80s 90s we always assumed that they were supposed to be kept super humid super hot and i had this one set up in a, in a like a very odd aquarium it was like a 10 gallon but it was taller and like thinner and hmm. uh i had you know some live plants in there and some like grape wood perches and long story short it it rolled on me after like a month and uh I was like, I'm never keeping these things again because I, I was, I thought it was awesome because as a kid in Reptiles Magazine, seeing the, you know, the Signal Herp ads with Rico Walters stuff and whatnot, I'm like, man, those are awesome. It's a really cool snake. Maybe one day I'll own one. I think I remember cruising King Snake and seeing the prices and being like, yeah, I'm probably not. Uh, so I got that one and and it rolled and I was like, oh man, I'm never keeping these things again. That was probably, I think that was 2011, maybe. And then you fast forward to 2016 or 2017, uh, came across a Bioc on Craigslist. I had a pair of caramel carpets. So I messaged this guy. I was like, hey, I got these carpets. You know, you want to trade? And he said, sure. Went down there, got them. Like, that animal was in really rough shape. He gave me issue after issue for the longest time didn't you know he, he wouldn't eat anything but live for the first like year that i had him still have that snake his name is problem child as a result um and then i found a female and then you know over time i i slowly got another one here another one there did some trading with some buddies after i had my first clutch and and now i have i think about 10 of them um and my perception of them now compared to then is then is is completely different. I mean, they are an extremely easy snake to keep. They're not difficult. A lot of it depends on your location and what sort of uh, like what your ambient humidity and and overall weather are like in your area. Like down here in the southeast, it's humid all the time. Like it's brutal here right now. I mean, it's, it's like 97, but with the humidity, the heat index ups it to like probably in the triple digits easily. And even with the AC running, like humidity isn't really an issue. I don't have that problem. Um, temperature wise, like we have really wild, mild winters, so it's not a big issue either. But if you're out West, you're probably going to have issues with humidity. If you're up North, you're probably going to de be dealing with cooler temps overall. But um, in my opinion, I think they're, they're, extremely easy to keep as long as you sort of give them what they need which seems and sounds kind of redundant but they're they're a snake that that does fabulous if you kind of ignore their existence sort of a willful neglect yeah yeah so like a kind of like boy gun that regard yeah yeah so uh for those of us who haven't had a green cheese and can't really seem to find a good source in their care. Uh, what do you say is the best way to keep them? Uh, I keep mine really simply. So I have mine and I have a big Cambro rack, Cambro tub rack. So that's that really hard plastic that restaurants use to store food and stuff. Um, this was an old habitat systems rack. So it's, it was convenient because I got it from a, a local friend. Um, 
I do love the Cambro tubs. That rack is like seven foot haul, uh, tall, and it takes up a very large chunk of my room. So for that aspect, I hate it. But the Cambro tubs work great. I keep mine really simple, just a puppy pad. They have a perch that sits in the corners of that tub. Uh, and then they have a, a big water bowl. And then there's usually pothos growing in most of them. There's a few that aren't, but uh, I've kept them like that for the longest time. Doesn't matter if it was neonates or juveniles or subadults or adults. Uh, I've kept, I have one right now that's in sort of a quote unquote like naturalistic setup where he has, He's on mulch. He's got a pothos that's planted and growing in that cage. And um, I don't really see a major difference between the two. I just prefer the the puppy pad method because it's it's just easier to clean up. You know, like chondros when they go for food, like they give it a hundred percent. You know, they don't they don't really half ass grabbing food. You know, so like my issue with particulate substrate in that regard is because they get so excited, I worry about them. Um, grabbing the mouse and then some of the cypress mulch or whatever you know you might be keeping them on and to me it's just easier to keep them like that and then my room is right now because of my aki cage it's an ambient heat so we're looking at i think the highest it'll get is probably in the mid to upper 80s if it's a really warm day because i have a window in that room yeah uh, and then they'll drop down into the 70s at night um they really, they don't need a lot of heat, um, in my opinion. Like I said, it's going to depend on where you live. If you're living up in like Canada or like upstate New York or something like that, then it's probably going to be a different story. But down here in the south, I don't, uh, I don't worry about them too much. The, uh, I don't really miss mine. I'm, I miss them when they're younger. Uh, when I notice that they kind of, they have a bowel movement in the works. Then I'll I'll miss them because sometimes that'll trigger them to to fork that over. Um, and then feeding. I mean, I, I my my policy with with at least my adults is if I can't really remember the last time I fed them, then they're probably due. Uh, I am of the opinion that they're a, a leaner snake that isn't meant to be super massive, super heavy. Beox kind of being the exception, just because they are naturally larger. Um. So I don't, I like to keep mine on the leaner side. I don't like to, to pump them with food. Um, the last couple months I've actually been sort of going between frog legs and, uh, mice. So depending on the animal and the size, they'll either get like a whole leg bone and all, or they'll get sort of a chunk of the, the thigh meat for, I have one smaller one right now that that's like a yearling and I'll feed that one some frog, frog leg periodically. but. Other than that, I mean, they're like I said, like they're 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 Morelia. So if they're refusing food, something's wrong. Um, and they're they're just you could feed them every day, and they they'd eat. Like I've I've had some that I fed them, and they went right back to perching and started caudal luring again. You know, it's like like it, it's unbelievable. Those things are just voids. They're just they're just stomachs. It's crazy. So you mentioned uh, you've produced at least one clutch. How how many uh, clutches of Crondros have you produced over the years? Just the one. That was uh, that was the first and only time I've bred those. Uh, unfortunately, and the reason I mentioned earlier about 
sort of I've shifted focus on colubrids for the time being is because the adult female that I had that that produced that perch clutch she had some issues and she ended up passing on me so she was my only adult female that was that was breedable uh everything else I had was either male or still really young so pretty much breeding condors got put on pause um I was hoping that maybe later this year I'd be able to get back to it but i'm really thinking that the animals that i have aren't going to be quite of size to where i want them to be so they'll probably end up just going another year and it won't be until 2023 like the the fall or winter that i start pairing conjures again so we'll see but yeah it was just the one clutch and it was a it was a really good learning experience um i learned sort of what i would change up from from how I did things that first time. And uh, it makes you appreciate sort of the the stuff like your corns and, and other things a little better because that stuff just doesn't require, it's not as stressful. You know, that I talk about that with like the, the bear rats and stuff. Like you got to have the, the stuff that's more complicated and requires a little more attention to detail. But then you also got to sort of balance that with the other stuff that just isn't nearly as difficult and it will hatch at room temperature, you know, just, you gotta, you gotta have a little bit of both, you know, if you're working really, really, really sort of intense detail oriented stuff, like that's, that's cool and all too, but there's something to be said for having a species. That's just a breeze that, you know, just gets it done. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. So you've, uh, I'm a personally I'm a big fan of uh, scrub pythons, so I know you've kept some in the past. So uh, I've heard your opinions about them, very strong opinions, and my opinion, very incorrect opinions. But uh, what's your experience with keeping scrubs? And that incorrect part was a joke, just to clarify. Oh no, you're fine. Um, I don't. I had so I my Phil uh, for as like a wedding present gave me a tannin bar scrub that he had. I need to get your type of friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had it. He was like, I don't, you know, I don't really know what I want to do with it. I don't have any real plans for it. I don't think I'm going to come across another one. And I had kind of Jake had a had a scrub. I don't I think his is a a bar neck, if I'm not mistaken. And I know Jake Jake had his for a long a while before I got mine. And um, it was cool, and I was like, you know, I looked into tannin bars a little bit because Phil had showed me the one that he got, and I did a little bit of reading on. I was like, okay, this is this might be like the right move for me because I it's a scrub, but it doesn't get huge. You know, it's not a yeah. it's not a big scrub. Tannin bars stay small, so I was like, this might actually work out. So I brought him home uh, from Daytona. I think it was last year, and I kept him for for a while, and I had him for up until couple months ago um and it was like he was he was they're very cool snakes like i will say that i understand why people like them uh i enjoyed it for the most part having it the frustrating part was cleaning was it took you know you get them out of the cage no problem uh, getting them back was always a chore. So it was like, anytime I had to clean that cage, it was like, okay, here we go. Like, let me make sure I got like a half hour of my day cleared because getting them out is going to be easy. Getting them back in isn't going to be, I got to take everything out. I got to put everything back in. Uh, you know, as soon as you touch them, they just, they spray urates and stuff everywhere. 
like a cannon. Um, for some reason, what I was reading said that tannin bars were like the most mellow of all the scrubs, and that is definitely not the case. Um, and so after a while, I just my buddy Travis Wyman, uh, you know, he was looking for his daughter. I guess was going to get a, a bigger scrub from somebody else, and he was kind of he was okay with it, but it wasn't ideal, and that fell through. And so I was like, oh well, you know, if you're interested in this tannin bar, you know, he sell them to you, and he took it, and now you know his his daughter's loving it, so. It went to a good home. Um, scrubs just aren't for me. Like I said, I appreciate them. I think they're gorgeous snakes, and I, I really like them. But as far as keeping them, it's just one of those species that I'm like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I didn't. I had my, I had my taste. And, yeah. uh, I think it's they're they're a group that seems to sort of come and go in waves in terms of popularity. I think a lot of people see them sort of have this romanticized idea of what keeping them is going to be like. And then they get them, realize that it's not what they thought it was going to be, and then they end up getting out of them. And so you see like this sort of cycle of like a lot of people buying scrubs, and then after a year or two, you see a lot of people selling scrubs. And uh, I mean, even Jake, I think Jake's kind of fallen out of love with them too. Like he has his still, but he's like, it's just he's like, man, it's just a they're they're stupid accurate when they strike, like they're they're little heat seeking missiles. Um, but they're just they're a handful. Like that's that's all it is. You know, they're just it's a, they're just a handful, you know. They're they're not a Brettles python by any means. And Brettles are like my measuring stick for a lot of python species in terms of awesomeness. Gotcha. What so are your like, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on scrubs? Like where do you uh I've I personally at the moment only have a, a juvenile female tannin bar. But though I do have another male, or I have a male order off more market. So hopefully we'll get a few years, get something going with those guys. But hell yeah. With uh, my female, I never experienced any of those problems so far, which just might be because mm -hmm. she's small still, but I never had her urate on me or anything like that. Yeah. Never... Well, that may be the difference too, because I think this guy, I got him as an adult. Phil had him as an adult. Um, I don't know. I I doubt it was captive bred. So that that could be a very big differentiating factor is the fact that you're dealing with young captive bred animals that seem to I'm, adjust better than. I'm ninety percent sure she's a uh, import. So yeah, yeah. Well, even then, getting them at a younger age, like I've noticed with chondros too. Like you get them younger, at, if if they're imports, they seem to Calm adjust down. adjust a lot faster to captivity compared to like that you know problem child that adult male green tree i have no idea how old that snake is if i had to guess he's probably in the realm of like six to seven years old and he's never fully sort of chilled out you know he's he's always been really rambunctious the female that i paired him with she came in she was imported at a young age she was a massive biok but she was really mellow like once she came out once i got her out she was fine every now and then you'd kind of open the door and she'd be a little a little bitey but i think it was mostly a food thing uh, but she was, you know, she was a doll when she was out, but that other, some of the other animals that I've seen that are adult imports, like, I don't think they ever fully relax. You know, they're always, always on edge. Yeah. So, uh, you recently have gotten into, uh, locality corn snake breeding. You want to go into that a little bit? Absolutely. I, uh, being here in Beaufort, South Carolina, I am in what I consider the mecca for corn snakes, the famous Okatee Hunt Club. 
that was so popular for so many years, you know, decades ago for, for the corn snakes that, that came out of that area. You know, that's, that's a short drive from where I live. Um, to me, like the, the corns we have here in the, in the very bottom corner on the coast of South Carolina, those are some of the best in the world. Uh, and so I have, my locality project is from the island that I live on here. So Beaufort County itself is is made up of a lot of islands and barrier islands, and I live on one that's fairly large. Uh, and over the last probably five or six years, I've just come across some corns that were on the smaller side. One of them was that I raised up since it was a like a fresh out of the egg uh, neonate. Um, and so I have a group of three. I have. 2.1 on the ladies island stuff and then i have another one that's from sort of the you know the quote-unquote mainland part of town um that's technically just beaufort county itself um and that's a female too so that's my sort of locality stuff that i have at the moment um just hatched out a clutch of the pure ladies islands their f1s and then I hatched out a clutch of a ladies island male that I paired to a ghost tessera female. So I've got, you know, a clutch of like half tesseras and then everything's het ghost and those look really cool. So it's the locality thing has just been fun because I, I love the, I, the ability to, to continue breeding that and seeing what happens with that over the coming years, but also sort of having the spare males around and stuff to sort of plug it into some of the other morph stuff and see what happens and just, you know, enjoy it and have fun with it. You know, corn snakes were something that me and my dad bred together back in 2000 and 2004. And so I've always had a soft spot for them. And up until the last year or so, I've really sort of, I guess, fallen back in love with them in a sense and, and really started going hard on them. And uh, now a, a pretty big chunk of my collection, if not at least half of it is, is corn snakes, not even counting all the babies and stuff. So. Okay. It's, uh, yeah. So, uh, what's something that kind of physically, visually sets Lady Islands apart from your kind of your standard looking corn snake? Um, at first glance, in comparison to sort of just your standard, I guess, wild types, um, in my opinion, not a whole lot to me. It's they're you know they're special to me because it's right here from home. Like that's kind of the, yeah. the appeal to me. Um, you know, to most people, they're probably going to look at it and be like, oh yeah, it's just a, a normal looking corn snake. And there is some, like I have noticed some of the holdbacks from last year, they have just these really nice, deep burgundy saddles. There's a couple that seem to have these really, uh, oddly wide saddles. Um, they start out with this sort of gray base that is morphed into like this nice sand tannish color. Uh, the recent clutch that I hatched out of pure the ladies island, the ladies island, that was the same dam from last year, but a different sire. Those have come out really interesting. Those are starting to really color up already, which is wild. Cause I mean, we're only those hatched at the 4th of July, like that same weekend is when that, that clutch started hatching. So I'm only keeping a couple holdbacks, but um, I mean, for the most part, yeah, it's there. If you're someone that's into the morphs and stuff, you're probably going to look at them and not be all that impressed. Uh, if you're someone that's into locality stuff, then, you know, you'll kind of get it. You'll understand, you'll have the appreciation for it. But honestly, for the most part, I don't, they're nice in the, in a, the way that a nice wild type South Carolina corn snake 
can be you know if that makes any sense i mean are they they're definitely not anything like the jaspers that have the crazy crazy thick saddle borders and the neon oranges or anything like that but my plan with that whole thing though is to is to line breed and see what happens you know especially with what i have raised up from last year if i can get a male up to size by this time next year or slightly before that you know i'll try and pair them back to the mom to see what happens you know i'm just i'm, I'm just having fun with it it's just a little sort of pet project i guess if you want to call it but it's just fun it's just cool you know i like i said it's it's a it's a cool sort of homemade project the fact that it's right here in my backyard kind of thing i i love uh but i mean grand scheme yeah they're really not anything phenotypically to to do a double take at but yeah so do you have any uh plans for your collection moving into the future i'm not sure it's uh space is is tight sort of the biggest issue right now that's kind of become the at the forefront of things to to figure out is definitely space and what i'm going to do moving forward if i'm going to be breeding more than i than i have this year which this year's i've produced more stuff than i've ever produced at least on the snake front um because there's there's a ton of stuff i want to get into like i have some rhino rats now and i i that is one of my all-time favorite species of snake and so i you know i plan on breeding those and like those are going to require some work because those aren't something like the corns that you can just sort of drop feed and and not have to put a lot of effort into um those are going to be a little more a little more tricky to get them started and established uh more chondros same way so i don't know i mean i'm I keep telling myself I don't need more corns, but then I see some of the stuff that my buddy JT at Silent Hill Reptiles keeps popping out and putting on his available page. And uh, my buddy Chris at Badlands for Pediculture keeps hatching out some just insane stuff. Um, so it's tough. I mean, I, I obviously, like, like everyone else, uh, if I could buy it all, I would. You know, if I had the space for all of it, I'd have it. Uh, but it's definitely getting down to the wire where I kind of have to be a little more picky about what I end up bringing in. And even from like a biosecurity standpoint, you got to be kind of mindful of, of who and what is coming into your room. Um, animal wise, not necessarily people, but yeah, I don't, I think I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I have as far as chondros now. So I don't really plan on, on diving into those anymore than I, than I already am um bear rats kind of i'd like to bring in some some more diversity into the the blood of what i have uh corn snakes it's just there's too much cool stuff there's too many cool morphs there's too many cool combinations it's it's really hard to to pinpoint what i want to sort of focus on there in terms of the morph stuff and and sort of stick to it um and then you know the the Dion's rats and the the twin spotted rats, so the the Elafe bimaculata and the Elafe Dion. Those are also two species that not a lot of people in the states are really doing stuff with anymore. So I'm planning on pursuing those. Um, maybe some some pines. I like my southern pine. She's she's cool. That's a big impressive animal when they get to adult sizes. So yeah, there's, there's a. I, I may get her a, a boy at some point. I don't know. Jake has has two 
he has a pair, so she may just get put in with her with with his male and uh get some hats or something. But I don't know. It's kind of just taking it easy right now and planning uh planning for the future in terms of what I want to do with pairings and stuff and trying to think long term and trying to make it happen. It's just tough, man. There's just too much cool stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, your Asian Alafe species, uh, Dion's and Bimaculata. Uh What's like working with those and keeping those? They're really cool. They're uh, they're small, which is it's it's really surprising. So Dion's at one point did seem to have a pretty dedicated following in the U.S. In the in Europe, they're crazy popular. Like there's a lot of people keeping them, a lot of people breeding them. There's a ton of localities, and there's a huge array of colors and patterns that they come in. And then here in the States, uh, for whatever reason, they they had a, a period of time where they were popular, but it seems like it's really sort of waned. Um, maybe it's because around that same time, you know, you had other stuff growing in popularity, like the ball python craze and yeah. some of the other stuff. But um, I'm hoping to bring them back. I mean, they're they're just they're an awesome, uh, you know, my adult female is probably slightly bigger than an adult, like a, a decent sized adult corn. Um, and not even like in length, like in length, they're, they're probably about the same. They're just a little stockier. Uh, and then my male is like the size of probably a, a year and a half, two year old male corn. Um, and they just, they're cool snakes. They're, uh, like I said, it's amazing that how they aren't more popular just blows my mind because, like I said, they come in a different bunch of different colors, bunch of different patterns. Uh, the bimaculata are a little different; those are even smaller. Uh, those also come in a decent array of of sort of patterns and colors. I don't think they're as diverse in in that regard as as Dion's are, but uh, that was a species, so they have to get really cold to breed. And so I cooled everything off in my garage over the winter here. But unfortunately, because of South Carolina, winter doesn't really kick in until like January. So it's like Christmas Day and it's like 70 degrees. And I'm sitting here going like nothing is going to go. Like it's too damn warm. And so I was really worried actually that the Bimaculata and the Dion's wouldn't go. But the Dion's did. Bimaculata didn't. But last night they were, he was he was chasing her around like crazy. So I don't know what the deal is there. Cause if they lay, like if she, if he makes it happen and they just end up laying eggs and what is it? It's uh, about to be August. Like it'll be bizarre. Cause that's just not my room is warm. Like it's, it's way warmer than what they would get for brumation. I mean, we're talking about a snake that needs to get probably in the upper forties, low fifties to really make something happen. So who knows what's going to happen there, but, I was bummed that Bimaculata didn't go, but the Dion's did, and I got a really nice clutch from them for the first time. Uh, it was a Siberian male to a Beijing female, and they're this odd... So they have eyes that remind me of, like, Ganyasoma, uh, but they have, like, the pattern of a garter snake, but they're, you know, they're glossy and they're smooth like corns. They're just this sort of odd um, combination of of things, and they're just really cool. I mean, they're they're pretty mellow for the most part. My my adult male is is not. Um, my female, she's she's pretty chill when you get around. All the babies are pretty mellow. Uh, they rattle their tail a lot, kind of like the bears do. But they're uh, 
if anyone is curious, like go on Google and look it up. Like you can see pictures of the stuff people are doing in, in Europe. And there's some that are just fire engine red, solid fire engine red. And that's it. Like there's some that have a pattern that are that color. There's melanistic types. There's some that have white, like pinstripes. Um, my male, that Siberian male, he's like this apricot pink when he, after he sheds and stuff. And he's, it's just it's wild you know the adult female the beijing girl she's got like this really nice antique wood mahogany red going on uh with like this sort of dirty tannish khaki color in between the saddles and stuff it's it never seems to translate well over in pictures but it's a it's one of those species that it makes more sense when you see them firsthand you know that's one thing i really wanted to do with my podcast is want to interview someone in Europe, just get kind of a perspective of European herpetic culture, but fortunately just don't know who to reach out to to get them on. So I know some people we'll, we'll right, hunt might, them down. Might have to text you about that sometime. So yeah. it's interesting just the, and I think actually U S herpetic culture is starting to kind of, kind of shift. I've always considered sort of what the European guys do, you know, the European model of smaller collections, but more elaborate, bigger setups. And then you have sort of the U S Walmart version, which is like get as many animals in a room as possible. Uh, I feel like I kind of ride both sides of that fence fairly evenly. I'm not an anti rat guy by any means. I think they do serve their purpose. I think there's, they're suited well for some species and not for others. I'm a firm believer that if if the recipe calls for you to do a six foot cage, do that. If the recipe calls for a 32 quart tub, do that. You know, yeah. uh, and that's that's the problem is like you see a lot of the European folks, especially you know when I post videos on YouTube and stuff. You know, they're like, oh, the conjure cages need more. Like you can't just have a perch. That's cruel. And I'm like, I don't it works like the animals are doing fine. Like they're, I'm not having any issues. I don't, there's no other basis that you can sort of, there's no other measuring stick aside from like being able to hear the animal's thoughts and know what's going on. Like I can, I can give them as much as I can. And if they're eating, if they're breeding, if they're not having any health issues, then clearly they're okay. Like you can only do so much if that makes any sense. I'm trying not to get yeah. too uh, tinfoil hatty, but uh, I don't know. I do. I, th I do think there is a shift though, as as U.S. herpetoculture starts to seem to adopt more of the smaller collections with the the larger vivaria, you know, all out sort of. The one person that comes to mind is is Roy Bloggett. Uh, he's out west, and he's he's got uh, what species is it? Spilodes or Pacillonotus. But he's got them in just these massive vivaria with like live plants and it's it's awesome. And he has a very he has a small collection in comparison to a lot of people, but he really went all out on their setups and stuff, and it's it's awesome. Like that's the way he likes to do it. But I love it because he's also not one of those guys that's gonna sort of give you a hard time if you're not doing it that way either. You know, he understands that that not everyone does it the same way and that he does it because he likes to do it that way. And yeah, it is nice to like, I understand racks. I can understand why people wouldn't be into them. Um, I like them. I use them, but I use them on species that I know are going to work well with them. 
So like my Ganyasoma jansenii, that's not a species that I would keep in a rack. Like that's an active species that's moving around a lot. Like they need space, they climb, they, you give them the space they're going to use it is, is kind of the thing. Like if they're in a rack, I feel like, yeah, they'll, they'll probably feel secure and, and do okay. But you know, mine have UV, uh, tons of hiding spots, live plants, you know, a nice big, uh, lay box or human hide, whatever you want to call it. And, um, I just think that that's what that species calls for. You know, it's something like a, like a blood Python or something else. That's much more of a ambush predator. That's, that's more about sort of just lying and waiting in a small area and feeling more secure in an enclosed smaller space. Then if it does better in a rack than it does in a cage, then put it in a rack. You know, it's yeah. pretty, pretty easy. I don't understand why there's this sort of this giant argument over what's better or worse. It's like, do what the recipe calls for. Well, I think that's kind of a larger thing with herpeticulture in general. Just, I mean, I haven't really dived headfirst into herpeticulture, the culture of it, so to speak, but I've dipped my toe in it. It just seems like every issue is a fierce cutthroat debate. It's exhausting. Like. It's exhausting. Basically, it's drama for people who don't watch Real Housewives of LA. Yeah. It's it's one of those things too where it's not even worth. I don't uh, I don't bother getting into arguments with people on the internet over that kind of thing. It's like, look, my animals have nothing to do with you. Your animals have nothing to do with me. Just because I keep mine a certain way has zero bearing on how you keep yours. Like, yeah, you may not like it. It may not be your thing, and that's fine. Like, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just like as long as the animals are healthy, and as long as everything's. Uh, long term, you know, no health issues. You're not having to go to the vet every other week because there's some new problem cropping up. Then you're doing something right. It's working. You know, we can only do so much with the with the information we're given on a regular basis. Yeah. So uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, do you do any uh, like herping at all? I try to. I don't do as much as I as I'd like to. Jake gets out way more than I do. He's got a handful of really good spots that he road cruises. Um, and a lot of that is mostly because my job, my prior job, I was working 10 to eight or 10 to nine, you know, five days a week. So getting out, uh, at the right times and stuff wasn't, didn't really work out. So now I'm working a regular nine to five and I have weekends off. And so Jake and I keep talking about going out and doing more herping. It just doesn't seem to happen as much. So we did go out road cruising, like two weekends ago, we didn't find anything, but um, he's got a couple like WMAs he really likes to go to that I haven't been out to yet. So we're definitely planning to, I think now that it's like, we're sort of in the, the middle of summer and it's just brutal. Uh, so I think we're planning to do some more as it starts to cool off some, once we start getting into the, into early fall and things start moving around again. But yeah, it's, it's traditionally, it's been something that I've, I've done uh, I can't say that it's something I've ever really enjoyed except for West Texas. That was a different story because that was just, everything was so new to me. Uh, I've never been there before. So it was like another planet. Um, but in terms of herping around here, you know, I, I spent a lot of time over the summers as a kid, like going out and tromping around the woods and trying to find stuff and, and rarely really finding anything. And whether that was me or whether it was just the environment, around here is just screwed and there's no snakes besides black racers. I don't know. I, I, it's probably me, but really I just, I don't know. I, I, 
it's kind of like the reason I don't really go fishing with my parents anymore. Like they used to go fishing a lot. And it's like, there's after a while sitting on a boat all day in the sun, is just not fun anymore. Yeah. So I like road cruising because you can, you know, it's road cruising. You're not running around the woods. You're not getting eaten alive by chiggers and ticks and gnats and stuff. It's, uh, it's glamping. It's the glamping version of herping. You know, it's, the giant RV instead of a tent and saying and calling it camping. It's uh doesn't count. Yeah. Let's see here. I was about to say something. Oh yeah. So you mentioned that the only thing sometimes the students you find down there are like racers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh I actually have a friend in uh, East Texas. Uh he was setting up a line trap on his property to see what he has on there. And it just finished the boxes up. And he put his box in his yard. Didn't even put up any fencing to lead it to him or anything like that. He comes back a few hours later. And he's already got a few racers stuck in them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're everywhere down here. Um, sort of the cool thing about Ladies Island, though, is that we have one of the largest populations of coral snakes in the state. Hmm. Of course, everyone on my block sees them on a regular basis and I see dead ones on the road all the time, but I never see a live one. So it's kind of been a running joke between my wife and I, uh, cause she's seen a live one not that long ago. And I have, I have not, I have neighbors text me pictures of them all the time and they are in fact coral snakes. It's not like a, you know, a scarlet snake or, or scarlet King or something that, you know, they would think was a, was one. Um, so they're there. I just, I actually, I was going to message uh, Jack Vicente who, who does a lot of uh, venom collection from corals and ask, cause he's like the coral guy, especially Fulvius, you know, the Easterns and basically be like, what do I got to do to find one of these things? Like I haven't seen a live one in a incredibly long time, probably at least a decade. I've seen plenty of dead ones, but I never can seem to come across a live one. And so I'm like, what am I, is there like a certain magical hour I'm supposed to just be looking around? Like, am I, is there a certain weather I'm supposed to be looking for that seems to be more conducive to corals? I don't, I don't know. It's been a, it's frustrating because I have neighbors tell me all the time, yeah, I saw another one. And then I see some, I, there was not even that long ago. I think like last month I saw like three dead on the road, just on like my street, the next street over and like the other street on the way out. It's just, and like big ones, like decent sized adults. And I'm like, what huh. the hell, man? It it kills me. Cause that's that's probably my favorite my favorite native venomous for sure, but probably one of my favorite native snakes or reptiles, period. And I I can just never see a one that's that's alive. We're all road pizza. Huh. Well, okay. Well, now you mentioned I'll probably next time I'm down Herp- herping South Carolina, I'll probably stop at Ladies Island and look for those corals. Yeah, man. They're, they're definitely here. Like I said, there's, there's no shortage of them. Uh, I actually think, so I've seen a lot since we bought this house back. It's been, we've been in this house for almost three years now. I've seen more Eastern glass lizards or legless lizards than I've probably ever seen. And so I actually, like, as I walk around and see those, it kind of made me think, like, I wonder if because we have so many of those that has, at least in just in my little area here, if yeah. that has some sort of bearing as to why there's so many corals, because I've seen more of those legless lizards than I've seen pretty much any other species. And that's a pretty prime food item for corals. 
Yeah. So I actually wonder if there's some sort of correlation there, but that eh, correlation that's pretty good. <laughs> good one. Yeah. Let's see here. Uh, are there any uh, future plans for the your podcast? I don't know. Uh, so like you know the Eric Burke and the NPR guys like they've added a bunch of shows to their network and stuff now. As it stands for us, we've got THB, which was like the flagship show that started everything. Then we have Snakes and Stogies, which is what the live show that Phil and I do. Phil Wolf, we do those on Monday nights. Uh, and then we have Chondrocast, which was a podcast that I haven't done in a while, but it was Chondro specific. Um, started Corn Stars within the last year. That's a Corn Snake focused podcast. Excellent name. And then uh, we have Lizard Brain Radio, which Bill Bradley does. Um, and I think that's it. Should be it. I keep wanting to do like an invert show because there was a point where I was keeping a lot of scorpions and tarantulas. But it's just one of those things where finding the time is tough. Uh, it's not as bad now because I was doing herpet the uh, the Herpeticulture magazine with Billy Hanabu Obami Reptiles. We did that for about two years. As of January, we kind of put that to bed. Um, so there was a point where I was just incredibly busy with stuff all the time. And I'm adding more things to the workload, like new shows and things like that. Um, it wasn't it wasn't going to happen then. It may, it may change now that I have a little more time to do things. But I don't know. I'm also kind of happy with, with where we're at now and what we've got. And, um yeah, I just like with with the corn with corn stars. I I noticed there there was a point where there was a podcast from that Donovan Winterberg did that was corn on the pod. Uh, Chondrocast was kind of a result of GTP Keeper Radio. They were you know they do episodes like twice a year, and so I went to Bill Stiegel, who was a host, and was like, hey, if I start this show, like, are you cool with that? And even that's sort of fallen by the way, so I don't think I've done an episode of that in the last, like, six months. But it's mostly just, just schedules. You know, I have a I have a family and my own collection to keep up with, and so it's sort of balance and everything has been tough. But I don't know what the what the overall, like, future plan is. We're, we Our policy has kind of always been, like, it just let it take us where it takes us. You know, don't force anything. Just ride the wave. And it's it's served us well so far. Uh, it's watching the the growth of it has been crazy. You know, Jake and I when we started THB, it was like no one's gonna care about this. No one's gonna listen to it. You know, this could last two months. It could last two years. Who knows? And I think that's a big part and and why it's it's still kicking and doing its thing is it's just not going you know going into it with no preconceived notions about what you want it to be or you know how big you want it to be just letting it do it itself and, yeah. and carry itself and I don't know it's uh you see a lot of podcasts sort of start up and you know there's that initial sort of vigor of shows for the for six months or so and after a while just life gets in the way and or people don't see the traction that they want from it and so they kind of ditch it and i think the the big the, the secret to to making it sort of last is just consistency and putting in the work to to help it grow and stuff but 
also just like i said not really if you go into it not expecting anything i think that's the best uh sort of the best way to way to do it but yeah i mean the whole reason i started mine was just give me a cheap excuse to talk to cool people so so far it's been working out yeah yeah we uh i mean jake and i like i remember when we were starting and we had uh started having guests on and stuff and There was a few where like, man, there's no way they're gonna come on. Like, there's no way they're gonna talk to us. Like, it's not gonna happen. And then we'd we'd hit them up and ask because you you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. And so we'd hit them up, and you know they'd say, sure, you know we'll come on. It's like, oh my god, like it's happening. Uh, Jack Vicente was one of those. I was like, I don't know if Jack because Jack's an older guy, you know. And I was like, I don't think he's gonna be into it. But he said yes, and I was like, oh, he was he was he was one of the white whales as we call them. You know, we've got a. <laughs> A few on our list. Everyone has their list of of white whales of of people that they really want to have on, but maybe they're they're intimidated by them or they don't think they'll go for it. And uh, Jack Vicente was one, and we had him on. I want to have another coral episode with him. Uh, recent one, like Derek Roddy, uh, hit us up actually and and asked to come on, and I thought that was awesome. Uh, you just you over time, you really get surprised at at who listens to the shows you know the longer it's out and stuff the more people find it you just you you really do get surprised uh at the people who listen and um but yeah like i said just sort of letting it letting it do its thing uh so do you have any plans for uh more crocodilian content going forward to worry about competition so to speak <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, we're definitely not against it. Um, there's a book I'm reading right now called tears for crocodilia. And the author of that hit me up to do a review of it for the website. So I'm, I'm very close to being done with that. And he's like, he's got a paleontology background, so he's not necessarily like a herper, but he wrote this book on, on crocodilians and sort of like their place in history and, and sort of religion and stuff, especially in like Egypt with Nile crocs and whatnot. Uh, but he talks about sort of the current state of what's happening to some of the species like gharials and things like that. Yeah. Um, so we plan to have him on once I finish the book and you should definitely check it out. I'll send you the link to that if you're interested, but it's so far it's, it's been a phenomenal book. Like I really enjoyed it. He sent me the PDF version of it and I was like, I ended up buying a copy because I don't know about you, but I got to have like a physical tangible yeah. copy. Like the digital ebook thing is cool and all, but it's just not the same. Yes, I'm a printer by nature, so I kind of detest ebooks. Oh, okay, with a yeah, passion, yeah. So I just I gotta have that physical food from my mouth. So yeah, uh, so I ended up buying a copy, and, and it's it's really good. Uh, it actually led me to buy another book that he had mentioned in that in his book. He had talked about this other book. I have to look it up. I ended up buying it off Amazon used for a couple bucks. But yeah, I mean, crocodilian content. Like we, I definitely want to do a dwarf caiman episode, um, just because that's a species that a lot of people are keeping. You know, it seems like a lot of people that are doing stuff with crocodilians are much more in sort of the academic side of things. Yeah. Uh, uh, admittedly, by their very nature, they're kind of hard to keep yeah. in a herpetocultural <laughs> setting. Yeah. So the book he talked about was Dragon Songs, Love and Adventure Among Crocodiles, Alligators, and Other Dinosaur Relations. And that one's by Vladimir Dinitz. 
Yeah, I'm pretty anxious to get into it. Uh, the one I'm currently reading that I was talking about is Tears for Crocodilia, Evolution, Ecology, and the Disappearance of One of the World's Most Ancient Animals. And it's by Zach Fitzner. Hmm. So, yeah. But uh, if you, I will say there's one guy who kind of keeps crocodilians kind of in her pedicultural setting, though. Let me put it this way: He started keeping crocodilians in her kind of her pedicultural wise, and it's now morphed into a AZA associated zoo. So, yeah. So uh, Chris Dieter is down in Angleton, Texas. Okay, that name sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Like a. Just got his third generation Niles hatched out. That's cool. And uh, he's working on a breeding project. I don't know how much he wants to share with us, but he's working on a breeding project with a T positive albino Niles. So, really? Yeah. That's cool. I love Cubans, man. Like, I, something about those and the American Crocs, too. Uh, that's another one that's it's surprising how many people don't realize we have a species of crocodile. Yeah, you know, that's a species that doesn't get much attention or love, and they're they're really cool. Again, it's just because it's it's right here in our own backyard, man. But the Cubans in particular are really interesting to me, just because of all the stories I've heard about them. And uh, pattern and color wise, I think they're really pretty. I like them a lot. And I don't. I've always wanted dwarf caimans. I don't think it's ever going to really happen. You know, we just had an episode with Jack Oliver. He's he lives on the upstate here in South Carolina, and he's got a dwarf. And so we talked about that a pretty good bit on that episode. And and I have to just live vicariously through him because I don't, hey, I don't have the space. Like it's one of those things where I just, the time and space and dedication, I just, I don't have for it. You know, I, I can't swing it. Same with the reason I don't have a lot of monitors and stuff. It's just, yeah, a lot. You know, snakes spoil you. I say that a lot. But the space and the food and snakes make it easy. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of upstate South Carolina, another person you might look into is uh, Dr. Chris Carmichael, one of my old professors. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know it's that not, name too. Yeah. Uh he's done some pretty interesting stuff in her her pediculture over the years. So mm -hmm. I think at one point he said he had the when he had him, he was there he had the only pair of uh albino olive pythons in the US. So Oh wow. Then he traded him, sold him away so he could afford to start his uh premier dog breeding project. So mm -hmm. Yeah. There's all kinds of cool stuff out there, man. I, that's Phil has some. Uh, well, he has water pythons. I don't know. I've never had olives. I don't think Jake's ever had olives. I know we have some friends that that keep them. Liasis have really never done a whole lot for me. I really like sabus, um, but outside of that, I don't know. I just I don't have much of a desire to keep those guys. Okay. So, uh, if there's like one species of reptile that you could keep what uh that you don't have what would that be mm. bush vipers atheris stuff that's a that's a genus that i i was absolutely obsessed with as a kid there was a point where i had just a binder and i printed any web page i could find that had information on those like bite reports all of it i couldn't get enough and that's still a, a a genus I'm very much interested in and, and I hope one day I can keep, um, you know, unfortunately when you're, when you're married, some of these, these hopes and dreams, uh, of, of things like that kind of get backburnered indefinitely. But, 
Uh, I just, that's another one where I just have to live vicariously through the people I know that have them. And they're just, that's such a cool group, man. There's, there's few snakes that look as badass as a, as a sedge viper and, you know, great lakes, bush viper, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, squams are really cool. The whole genus is just awesome. And I, there's something about small arboreal vipers and pit vipers that I just really like. Like, I don't want cobras or mambas or any of that like super fast sexy stuff like i want the tiny little tree vipers that just hang out and you can keep them in smaller cages, like enclosures and have them decked out you know naturalistic or naturally and that's 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 a dream right there is to have that stuff and like ophriacus and uh bothriacus and some of the other bothriopsis whatever you want to label them as like there's just there's so many cool little arboreal species that i just am really really interested in and maybe one day they'll happen who knows i don't i don't know yeah what's yours Oof. probably a crocodilian and yeah kind of basic for a crocodilian person but american alligator just because that's why i have the most experience with in <clears throat> You just can't go wrong with it again. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that uh, that book, the one by Fitzner, he talks about sort of the just the overall intelligence of crocodilians and sort of the I guess some of the recent studies that have been done that show some more social behaviors that maybe we didn't think they had before. Yeah, uh, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, the first like half of that book, there was a ton of stuff I learned that I was just completely unaware of when it came to crocodilians and um. I don't, it's, it's always sucked. Cause I mean, like alligators in particular, like people around here see them and they think that they're just these like dumb predators that are just running on pure sort of instinct. And I'm like, they're actually really smart. Like they, you know, they're people train them, you know, zoos train them. They, you know, they, they, they recognize their names. Like they recognize the people that are in charge of keeping them. Uh, I don't know. It just—it's one of those things where I think that's just really cool. And for some reason, people think that they're just these dumb giant dinosaurs. And I'm, there's so much more to them than than what you see, you know, like a transformer. Yeah, like, yeah, like uh, we had John Brugnan, who's the curator of the St. Augustine Alligator Farm, and he was telling us about uh, how they, for I can't remember exactly reasoning, but he. Their Siamese crocodiles had uh, laid clutch eggs and they decided to let the female hatch them out nat and raise them out naturally with the male. Mm -hmm. And they, they said he observed the uh, the male actually teaching his young uh, vocalization calls. Yeah, Fitzner's book talks about seeing some, uh, like thinking that there were some sort of sightings of, I think, Niles or maybe another species, like actively it looked like they were like playing with each other. Like they were chasing each other around. It wasn't aggression or anything like that, but he, he talked about that. It's just some, it's an, again, another thing herps, you know, especially crocodilians, there's so much more nuance to them and we just don't see them enough to sort of catch those behaviors in the wild. You know, it just, yeah. Just from my all diff different croc people I've talked to over the years, uh, they've told me that they've observed that, Animals that are raised up by themselves, you cannot put them in a group because for some reason they have literally zero social skills. So they're always yeah. getting fights. So you kind of, if you want to keep them social, you have to raise them with the, you know, all their siblings or mm -hmm. other young animals, or ideally at least initially with their mom. So, 
I mean, you think about it, it's, it's dogs aren't terribly different in that regard. I mean, my dog, he's a, he's a rescue. And when we first got him, I don't know if he was just kept outside chained up or something. Cause he like, didn't know how to be a dog when we got him. Like he, <laughs> he won't chase a ball. He won't fetch. He won't do any of that. And when we first were introducing him to other dogs, he was really nervous. He really didn't want anything to do with them. But now after, you know, you let him play for a little bit and he realized like, oh, okay, like we're not here to hurt each other. Like, no, this isn't a threat. Yeah. You know, and it seems like it's a very similar thing where it's, it would make sense that if they're, they're in a group uh, for most of their lives, you know, that they'd adapt to that sort of hierarchy of things and, and whatnot. But yeah. Uh, is there anything in particular you want to talk about now or? What else are you keeping besides scrubs? What is, uh, what got, you... got an adult pair of Dominican mountain boas. Nice. So really looking forward to those guys. Hopefully breeding. I haven't had any success breeding them, but I haven't really tried too hard. Really. Mm -hmm. So this year I'm going to really try and get some weight in the female before I cool her down. Then uh, I have an adult female diamond carpet that uh, I'm going to pair with uh my buddy has a trio, uh, not trio, a pair. So this winter, I'm going to, you know, send him over, send her over to his collection, to mm -hmm. see if we get something, you know, get some eggs out of that. Nice. Got a pair of. I actually, this past weekend, I picked up a few pairs of snakes. I picked up a pair of uh, Eastern Simpsons pythons yesterday. Oh, yeah. And. Uh, a pair of uh, gopher snakes a little bit before that. Mm -hmm. Let's see here, what else I'm missing? Got a my first snake that's alive. Uh, it's a male IJ carpet, mm -hmm. and just ordered a jupe baby female form. So eventually, I'll grow her up and maybe breed them. Awesome. So. Is you're up in Ohio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. It's uh, the Pitchu office are are awesome. I appreciate them for, for what they are and, and everything. And I, I like them, but Jake, like Jake is, is he loves the Pituovis and our buddy, Chris, you know, he has a bunch of Pituovis and I would love to get some Kankakee bowls and, you know, some Northern pines. And a, like I said, a male Southern pine for my female. And, but that's just, that's a lot of snake, man. That's a, that's a yeah. lot of space to commit to. And I'm already like, so strapped. It's, it's tough. Um, like I said, I mean, Jake has some, some just killer stuff. He has some fork line gophers and I, I don't know if they're as enjoyable because he's got, they're just super pissy all the time, but his, his Southerns, like his albino Southerns, man, they're just, they're puppy dogs. You can just reach in there and grab them. And they're just these monster, monster pines. So I yeah. have the appreciation for them, but I don't know that I'll ever, I'll only sort of dip a toe in that, in that pool. I don't really want to go too, too heavy into those. Yeah. Uh, zero. I mean, I don't know what specific locality these uh, Petufus are, these uh, gophers are. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just sold as, you know, Petufus can't, can't tend to yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. For all I know, they could be a bull snake, so. Yeah, I mean, they're fun. They definitely have a lot of personality, man. My southern, she she cracks me up, because if I'm in the room, she's, like, putting her little nose in the, in the vent hole, and you see her little tongue just coming out of it. And she's just, like, begging. Like, I walk in, and it's like a, it's like a dog, man. It's like the Ackies. They just sitting at the, at the door clawing at it you know wanting out and uh 
I have really enjoyed the Ackies. That was another one that was just as a kid, I wanted some so bad, but when you don't have a job, it's kind of hard to make those, those things happen. And then you get to be an adult and you're like, wait a second, I've got money and some of it's disposable and I can finally do the things I want to do. And I got my pair from Alan Stevens at origins reptile and, uh, they're fun, man. They're, they're so cool. Like that's the first lizards I've had outside of geckos in years. Uh, and they're fun. They're just, they're a blast. I, that's, I don't regret getting them at all. Actually, I, I really, I've been, I, they're a lot of fun. They, they're really not super handleable. Uh, if I want to basically have skin to skin contact with them, I got to have food on me. Uh, but I wanted like those in the the Kimberly rocks. That's sort of the extent of of what I want to do with monitors. You know, the tree monitors and stuff would be awesome. But again, space and and the time that that you have to put into those is just more than I can give. So sticking with the Odatria and the, the smaller stuff. So yeah, and that's uh, yeah. I can understand why monitor guys are so hardcore though about their monitors and why they're so into them. It's like because they are. Like seeing the gears turning, you know, with the Ackies, even though they're a smaller, they seem to be a little more lizard brained, no pun intended, but they definitely seem to be more, uh, I guess, primal is kind of the way I could describe it. It's not like the, the, what I've heard about like the Kims and some of the other stuff where they're, you know, they're actively sort of thinking and they realize that you're, they can differentiate the things from the environment a little better, it seems like. Yeah. Um, but the Aggies, I, like I said, they're fun. I do want some Kims. I don't know when that's going to happen because that's another thing that, space-wise, I don't want to. I don't want to skimp when it comes to the monitors and the stuff that that really uses space. I really don't want to short them there. So, yeah, I don't know. Oh, I also forgot. I have a male Argentine black and white tegu that probably gonna eventually going to move off of him just for yeah. space reasons. Just yeah. a fr- not that I'm, he's just not a small enough closure. It's more just to free up space for future projects. But mm-hmm. and in uh, about a week or so, I'm going to be picking up a trio of juvenile uh, smooth front caimans from a friend of mine. Nice. So that's cool. Yeah, man, that's at least only crocodilians legal in Ohio without a permit. So oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're uh, they're they're awesome, man. I, that was as a kid again that was one that i was always like that's the coolest thing ever like it's a small it's a small croc yeah and uh of course they're you know they're small but they're still a big commitment still a still a decent sized animal when you're talking full grown but yeah, it would dwarf be, is it a would... dwarf is a relative term yeah yeah it's not How's like a dwarf... your... go ahead uh, it's not like a dwarf monitor where it's like, it's, oh, it's like literally a right foot long no. monitor. It's not like, no, it's still big as like the majority of like alligators you see in zoos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Full grown. Or else they should be. What's your uh, time with the Tegu been like? Is he pretty, eh, is he pretty handleable? The and... thing is, he's very food motivated. Mm. So, and he, he is very much associated with me with food, so it's actually a bit risky to go in there sometimes. So yeah, because the first thing it does is he jumps at me and <laughs> with mouth open, it's like it's like oh, you're jumping just high enough to grab something very sensitive. So 
They're cool. I had a buddy who had one. Uh, he was part of the Georgia Herp Society, and uh, he and I, last minute, one one day he he called me. He's like, "Hey man," he's like, "I'm doing a like we have a booth at this school for some sort of event or something." He's like, "And the person I was supposed to do it with backed out. You know, can you come down here and do it?" And I said, "Sure." And drove down there, and he had his. Uh, that was the first time I had had my hands on a Brettles python, which is what started that that love for that species it was a big female he had and then uh he had a black and white with him and that was sort of the first time i'd really played around with those and his was like dog tame you know just yeah cruised around just chilled like never showed any signs of any uh you know nervousness or anything like that and like that's a fun lizard again that's another one that i really have zero desire to keep just because of the the level of uh involvement but I get the appeal. I definitely understand why why people like tegus and and want to have them. Uh, I can also see those things being a real nightmare if they're not tame yeah. and and still nervous and things like that. Uh, which I just found out recently. I didn't realize they could drop their tails. Yeah, I mean, I know I that, but I know unaware. I mean, I knew that, but I know it was like something like I guess only happens in super rare condition situations. As far as um, I know, so well, the only reason I found out is because I got a text from one of my old roommates who's a vet here locally, and someone had a red tegu in like their their workshop area, <laughs> and it was clearly missing. Like half its tail had regrown, and I was like, I don't. I texted some of my friends. I was like, Can tegus drop their tails? And they're like, Yeah. I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, I told those people like, if you catch that red tegu. I told them like put out a trap with a can of tuna or something or eggs or whatever, you know, they yeah. trap it and let me know and I'll come get it. And then I told, I asked my buddy at DNR cause they were, they weren't sure if they should call DNR animal control. And I have a friend in DNR. And so he's like, no, they'd call us. And I'm like, I'm assuming if you guys got it, you'd destroy it. And they're like, yeah. Uh, so I told him, I was like, if you get it, let me know and I'll come get it. I don't know what the hell I'll do with it. If I do get it, um, but they ended up letting it go behind the shop again or something. So I was like, okay, whatever. You know? But yeah, it's wild. It kind of reminds me of a story. This was actually before I was even born. Uh, so like back in like, I guess in mid nineties, mm-hmm. uh, person that li- used to live up above uh, where my family businesses, uh print shop is located at. Uh, they had a, a boa constrictor that got out. And was missing for several months. And I noticed over the summer that the local rabbit population seemed to have gone down a little bit. And just one day, one of the former cor- former workers there, he was uh, moving pallets, and he just put his hand underneath a pallet, and he just felt something. Pulled back, looked down there, it was just coiled up, flicking his tongue at him. So the first thing he does is he calls my very uh, ophysophobic uncle. It's like, hey, Zach, take a look at this. Then just as soon as he gets there, flips the board over to show it to him. <laughs> so of course he ran away. So there was a uh, I used to work as a merchandiser for a Budweiser distributor in grocery stores and stuff. And one of the Coke guys, uh, I guess he had he knew that I kept snakes or something, but he was telling me that uh, when they were like moving pallets with like bottles of like plastic bottles, like the six packs or yeah. whatever of Coke on it. Um, I don't know if they were like, if it was, they moved a pallet off of another pallet 
or if it was at the bottom of the pallet, but there was a cane break just chilling yeah. on one of these pallets <laughs> in their in their warehouse. Because then when they told me that, I was like, no way. And then he showed me a picture, and I was like, sure as hell. A little cane break. I was like, that would have sucked. Like, someone would have reached in there and got tagged or something. That wouldn't have been fun. And then everybody was like, what happened to you? I got bit by a snake. Yeah, right. Yeah. So how how would that thing even get in there? It's like, Who knows, man? Just left the pallets outside next next to the woods for a few days and then brought it them inside? Huh. Yeah, my best I guess. Just, there's no telling, man. It's it's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how an animal with no arms and legs is so good at getting in the goofiest places. I did see someone say that if you ever see a snake slipping around, it's some very almost impossible to get to location. And you wonder how the hell that snake got there. Chances are it's a rat snake. So. Yep. Yep. My Jance and I, man, when I first got them, I uh, the male, he got out like twice. It got to the point where I did put him in a, in a rack for until I could figure out another solution. But he got out, and then once I realized he wasn't in the tub that I had him in initially, uh, I started looking around the house, and he was somehow got in our pantry and was like almost on the top shelf. <laughs> Because I remember I was like looking around. I was like, you know what? I'm going to check the pantry. And lo and behold, he was like chilling under a, a can or something. So I don't, I don't know what he was doing in there. But and that same one got out at one point. And my daughter was like, I saw there's a snake loose. And we were like, what color was it? And she was like, it was, uh, it was, I think she said it was white. And I was like, I think she was seeing things. Like, there's no way. Uh, and so I was like, wait a second, let me go check. And I looked, and that same male Jansen I had gotten out again somehow. And that's what she saw, because when we found it again, she's like, that's the one I told you about. We thought that maybe she was just messing with us or something. We are like, whatever, you didn't see you didn't see any snake. Sure enough, it's that, that damn Jansen I again, so. I don't know. It's uh, That problem's been fixed, but... That was frustrating because, of course, it, you know, my wife would find it when I was at work and not at home. And so she'd be like, what do I do? And it's a pissed off Jansen. It's a Ganyasoma. So it's naturally just not a fun snake to play with. Uh, and, you know, I mean, she handled it like a champ and got it taken care of. Uh, anything you want to close out with then? Um. I don't think so. If anyone wants to get a hold of me or see any of the stuff we're doing, we're on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube under the Herpeticulture Network. That's where all our shows and stuff get uploaded. So it's on, you know, if you can find it under the Herpeticulture Network on Spotify and iTunes and Google Podcasts, uh, Audible, Amazon Podcasts, I think iHeartRadio for some reason. You'll find, I find that there's a, a lot of these weird like secondary sites like Podbean and stuff for whatever reason, like your RSS feed somehow finds its way to their website. And so it's on there too. I don't, I don't know, but it's on all the major platforms. Uh, you can find me and my stuff at Palmetto Coast Exotics on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, definitely 
am more active on Instagram than I am on Facebook in terms of the, the Palmetto Coast page and stuff because Facebook's page system thing is just a train wreck. I don't know if you've ever had to use it, but it's a nightmare. A little bit, yeah. Um, they keep trying to make things more convenient, and it seems like it's only making things worse. Because they got the whole like meta suite now, and it's like I just I just want to check my messages, man. Like I don't, I got to jump through all these hoops just to read my comments. It's, damn. But um, yeah, got a couple things on on Morph Market right now for sale: some Dion's and some really nice caramel Miami corns that are poshet for a couple cool things and yeah so tomorrow night monday the first is uh snakes and stogies 129 i think lucas lee from centralian exotics is going to be our guest he's also part of the npr network crew um but yeah herpeticulture magazine that's still out like people can still read that it's free digitally um if you go to our website, herpeticulturenetwork.com, you can still read all those there, and all the articles are on the website too. So feel free to check that out. We're also like we're keeping that site going in terms of the articles and stuff. I haven't posted anything recently, so if anybody is compelled to write articles on things or whatever, and they want somewhere to put them, hit me up. We'll throw them on the website. Uh, but yeah, that's about it. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. All right. Looking forward to talking to you later. Yeah, man. We'll get you on THP here soon. Oh, flatter. Thanks. Yeah. Right. Talk to you later. Thanks,